the Ortho PAC hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome today, Chris Carrier. Chris is a PA who works in orthopedics specializing in hand surgery. Chris also creates content for our event apps at our conferences, and he helps conference attendees navigate the app. Thanks for being here today, Chris. Yeah, sure. Today's podcast will be based on your talk at our recent orthopedic boot camp titled Hand Injuries Not to Miss. During this talk, you presented several case studies, and that will be the subject for our podcast. Welcome today, Chris. Great. Thanks for having me. Next case is hook of hamate fractures. In your case study, it was caused by a professional baseball player who developed pain while swinging the bat. I have seen a few of these from the foosh we talked about earlier. I've also seen trapezial ridge fractures from similar injuries. What is the special CR or computed radiography image that you get to help identify these? You mentioned a CT scan. How does CT help? How are these managed and what pearls would you like to pass along regarding hook of hamate fractures? Hook of hamate fractures, and, and this is certainly not as crippling an injury as a perioleumate thing, but it can cause some unique problems and they generally tend to be painful. They're also often missed. Uh, because we don't necessarily have a high index of suspicion for an injury there. So in racket or or sports where you swing a stick, so I imagine golf, Tennessee type things, but baseball is is kind of the one that the case study was about. There's a lot of force that goes through the hand that gets transmitted, and the right amount of force in the wrong spot can actually break off the hook of the hamate, which is sort of the volar process of the hamate bone. In this guy's particular thing, he had developed pain while he was batting. He came in and saw one of our sports docs. And so we do normal wrist x-rays for this sort of thing. So AP lateral oblique. But because of where he was hurting, right on that hook of the handmate, which is generally relatively palpable spot at the base of the hypothenar eminence, we check a carpal tunnel view, which is a special x-ray that really just shows the carpal tunnel. And that is typically the only real diagnostic test that you need to find these because with a carpal tunnel view, you can see the hook of the hamate in its entirety. And so if you see a fracture going across there, it makes it fairly apparent. In his particular situation, he was sent for a CAT scan because we have to figure out how big is this piece? Is it the piece that we can fix? Is it the piece that, that we would just take out? because we have plenty of options about what we do with it. So uh, in his particular situation, he did get a CAT scan, which re-demonstrated this hook of the hamate fracture. It was not very displaced, but it tends to cause a lot of pain, especially with gripping type activities. So that was a problem for a baseball player trying to hold a bat. The hook of the hamate fracture can also cause some irritation to the nerves that run by there because the ulnar nerve will wind up coming, at least with the motor branch, right past the hook of the hamate itself. And so we didn't want him to have any problems. When we think about the different treatments that we can have for that, there's all kinds of different management philosophies. If it's not super bothersome for the patient, you could give it a tincture of time, immobilize them, cast versus wrist brace, let that rest, let it settle down, see if it goes on and heals. And if it heals and they have no pain, then you haven't done anything to them, but they still got better and that's great. Sometimes the piece is big enough that you can fix it, and that's certainly a great option, especially if the piece is displaced and it's a large enough piece that you can actually get good fixation in. 
The third choice that we've come across is that you could just take out the broken piece. So we, we could do a surgical excision of the broken fragment. And in this particular situation where we had a high-level athlete who wanted to get back to playing as soon as he could, the best treatment for him because of the size of the fragment was actually just to take him to the operating room and take out the broken piece. The part that was broken was not adding any significant structural integrity to his carpal tunnel. And so we were able to kind of excise that fragment without really disturbing anything else around there. And that allowed him to get back to playing pretty quickly. So, you know, as far as picking up on these, it's really this pain on the ulnar side base of the hand. If you can palpate their hammy, then you can kind of elicit that pain from just that palpation. Check a carpal tunnel view because that might be the only thing that you need to find that fracture. And then we can at least know what we're treating. And it helps to speed up the timetable to getting them back to doing whatever they're trying to do. The next case is a good one, a left thumb cat mite. The pain from the bite was worse with increased motion, i.e. a septic flexor tenosynovitis. So key to recognize on this exam are cannabis signs. Chris, what can you tell us about cannabis signs and what are the key features of that exam? Can these be managed with antibiotics or do they always need to be opened and washed out? What pearls do you have for our listeners regarding a septic flexor tenosynovitis? There was a 67-year-old guy who had been bitten by a cat because... Cats are you know, nice, friendly animals all the time, I guess. Um, but he came to the ER two days later with pain over his thumb. And it, it looks sort of crazy. It's starting to get swollen all through his hand. His thumb was angry red, kind of had a almost a, a hematoma, sort of a blood blister appearance right where the puncture site was. And so they called us to take a look and, and said, well, you know, what do you think? And so we went and took a look at him and the physical exam things, the canable signs that we always look for in these sorts of situations, because the big question is, does he have a bunch of pus in the flexor tendon sheath? Does he have a septic tenus synovitis? And in this case, he did have a septic flexor tenus synovitis. And so the, the canable signs are when that's going on in a finger, the finger is usually pretty fat and swollen. And so that's one of the signs, you know big fat swelling of the digit. The digit tends to sit in a flex position because of all this swelling going on in the flexor tendon sheath. It basically makes it work like you're flexing the finger. And so the finger stays bent. They generally have tremendous pain if you try to passively extend or straighten the finger or the thumb. And so those are kind of three of the four. And then if you poke at them along the palm side of that finger, along the flexor tendon sheath, they tend to have a whole lot of pain and tenderness on palpation. So flex posture, the digit, big fat swollen digit, pain on palpation over the flexor tendon sheath, and then significant pain with passive extension of the digit are classically the four canable signs that we look for. And, and that's usually a clinical diagnosis. We typically don't have to do too much more after that. If we have a suspicion that they have a flexor tenosynovitis, the treatment would be open it up surgically so that you can decompress whatever infectious stuff might be going on inside there and then get them started on antibiotics. And so this is one that we typically don't manage with antibiotics alone. We have low threshold for taking someone with those cannibal signs to the operating room so that we can just wash them out because that's kind of the definitive treatment. It lets us see what's going on, lets us get out all the stuff that's causing the problem, and then we can let the antibiotics finish up the work and kind of take over from there. In this guy's particular situation, urgent IND, 
they got a good washout at the index surgery. He was treated with IV antibiotics and a long course of PO antibiotics. And he healed up with great function, no residual issues. So you know, for that one, when we think about the pearls that kind of come along with it, the canaval signs, clinical diagnosis, those four things are kind of key to making the diagnosis. This one doesn't do well just with antibiotics because the space is so confined that it's hard to get blood flow into that space to deliver antibiotics. So the treatment really is an urgent IND of the flexor tendon sheath with IV antibiotics. And then we generally think of this as a relative emergency. It's not the kind of thing that we would say is a true emergency, but relatively speaking, this needs to be done pretty much as soon as you figure out that they have that going on. Okay, case number six. This is a high-pressure injection injury with a paint sprayer into the hand. They don't really look like much initially, but they get really nasty. And the risk of amputation is significant due to the soft tissue injury of the toxicity of the material injected. Think paint, oils, anything that you can spray. So what pearls can you pass along to our listeners regarding high-pressure injection injuries? Yeah, this one can be kind of spooky, because the trouble with it is that the actual injury doesn't really look like much. And so these high-pressure injection injuries, we see it often with paint sprayers. So guys that are doing a lot of painting, and that's automotive painting, house painting. Anybody that's using a pressurized sprayer for that, that can happen with. We also see it every now and then with people who are using power washers. And you wind up getting a puncture through the skin from the sprayer. So you have the sprayer pointing at your hand, and for reasons best known to God, you pull the trigger, it leaves a little poke hole, tends to happen on the palm side of the hand, but it leaves a little poke hole on the, on the palm side of the hand. And some people just blow it off. They don't really think much of it. And they say, oh, I must not have done anything. It just kind of got too close. It poked me there. But what they don't really realize is that whatever was in that power washer or paint sprayer got injected inside their hand when they did this. And they might not really think much of it for a few days. And so the whole time, whatever got sprayed in there, is just sitting there causing all sorts of problems. And so this guy happened to come in, he'd been a few days out from his injury, but his pain was getting worse. And they checked an x-ray, that's normal, his labs are normal. But just based on his history and where he was tender, you know, he just has this little tiny poke hole on the palm side of his hand, but we took him to the operating room. And we basically had to open that whole thing up and there was a pile of latex paint in there which in the grand scheme of things is not the worst thing in the world, but it still doesn't belong there. So the paint has had time to congeal. It's kind of sticky, stuck in there, doing all these things. And it's sitting all over the neurovascular bundle. It's irritating the flexor tendons. And so while these don't happen often, this one was pretty rough. So you can have a pretty significant soft tissue injury as a result of just getting all that stuff sprayed inside there. And it's true, the risk of amputation is certainly based on what was injected. So if it was somebody that was cleaning stuff or with the pressure washer and it was just doing water, that has a much lower risk, ultimately, of amputation. But then, you know, after water, latex paint's a little bit worse. And then after that, some of the organic solvents are, are worse yet. The worst one is probably an oil-based paint, which has a much higher risk of amputation than any of the others. But if we're able to get them to the operating room relatively quickly, we can decompress all that, get out all the stuff that doesn't belong in there. And that usually can do a pretty good job of decreasing the risk of long-term complications. But this is someone, or this is sometimes something that's a little bit tough to really get a good handle on because the injury itself seems relatively benign compared to what's actually going on beneath. One of the other things that can happen with this 
is compartment syndrome. So you get too much stuff going on. You get too much swelling within a confined space. And if the swelling has nowhere to go, then the swelling winds up choking off the nerves and blood vessels in whatever structure you're talking about. A lot of times we think about it with leg fractures and and lower leg compartments and thigh compartment syndrome and forearm compartment syndrome, but the hand is another one where you can have that. So when we wind up having these kinds of injuries, we usually do a pretty good job of checking. You can monitor compartment pressures in the operating room. You can really figure out, do they have something that seems like a compartment syndrome? Oftentimes compartment syndrome, at least the way that I was taught, is a clinical diagnosis. And so if you have enough red flags that say this could be compartment syndrome, then the answer is, you're probably going to take them in and release those compartments to decompress all that space instead of necessarily waiting on it just to see what happens. One of the follow-ups that you know we kind of have about that same idea, you have an injury that causes swelling. If you're worried about compartment syndrome, you do everything you can to alleviate the swelling. And so one of the other things that we think about, and it doesn't really tie in so much to injection injuries, but you know, one of the common things that we had talked about was when we have a distal radius fracture, for example, or that perilunate dislocation, do we automatically do a carpal tunnel release because there's a bunch of swelling and that puts too much pressure on the median nerve because it's a confined space, the swelling can't really escape. And so it can cause some other damage to adjacent structures. For a perilunate, we typically would do a carpal tunnel release. For distal radius fractures, we usually examine them at the time of surgery, and if they have any numbness at all, we just say, you know what, we're going to go ahead, we're going to do a carpal tunnel release, and we'll fix your broken wrist, we'll do the carpal tunnel release all at the same time, that way we don't have to worry about anything, we've taken all the pressure off the nerve, that way you can swell as much as you want after we fix your broken wrist, and we don't have to worry about you. Chris, thank you for being here today. Listeners, I've been chatting with Chris Carrier, a PA who specializes in hand surgery, And Chris, thanks again for being on our podcast. Great. Thanks for having me. It's been a great time. Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. We also welcome you to visit our website, paos.org, where members can download virtual conference content and get Category 1 CME. Also, if you're a non-member and you're interested in our CME content, please visit the aapa.org Learning Central for the PAOS virtual content.